We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show Season 8, Episode 2. And unlike podcasts, which do multiple seasons a year to make it sound like they've been around forever, that's eight actual years of podcasting together for us, Dave. Are you sick of me yet? No, we get the occasional break from each other and that helps, doesn't it? <laughs> there was a pause there. <laughs> uh, yeah, dramatic pause. And look, listeners, of course I was away last episode for the now expected Camp David Summit with yourself, Dave, and the chaps from 42 to Doomsday and Spacefall. I quite enjoyed my annual episode as a listener, I've got to say. That's good. I'm glad you did. It was fun to record it. Yeah, awesome. And look, listeners, in today's episode, if you haven't already seen, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the William Hartnell story, The Time Meddler, as voted for by you good people via Twitter, one of four stories we proposed for this episode. No, absolutely. I've got plenty to say on that. And we've got lots of other little bits of news and short topics and what we've been watching. It's going to be a full episode as we're sort of back from our summer hiatus, it feels like. Oh, God, yes. All sorts of things have been happening. Should we start with the news, Dave? Well, that's traditional. <laughs> Alrighty. I'll go first. There's been some interesting goings-on over in the UK with Shooty Gatwa finally finishing his sex education filming and zooming directly into Doctor Who. Presumably, he's filming what will be the Christmas 2023 or possibly the New Year's episode. We know there's a festive sort of episode coming, Dave. Yes, and of course... It's being done in a big city, so people are going and watching the filming. And it seems as though the crew, and particularly Shooty, have been pretty relaxed about people coming out and shooting and, and taking photos and just hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. And for the past few weeks, we've had Millie Gibson out filming scenes on the streets of the UK without Shooty. And now I think he's playing catch up now that he's freed up from, from sex education. And something very interesting has happened, Dave. And I've actually made a couple of YouTube videos about this earlier in the month. So I know you've seen this, but our listeners might not have. And that's that Shooty has been running around in a new costume. And by that, I don't mean the new costume that got introduced to us where he's in the the tweed and the the little orange jumper ensemble he's out there in a big leather coat a loud shirt trainers and such and it's led me to think okay what's happening here is he filming two different episodes in the same location that's a possibility rtd's done that before after all or is he playing two different doctors in the same story and possibly this is a future doctor coming back to talk to his younger incarnation uh and they're delineating it by possibly having him in a in a way different costume just so you can tell oh that's the current doctor that's the doctor who's popped back from the future i don't know but something strange is happening not to forget of course that in the half a second clip that we saw of him beforehand where he does the what the hell's going on bit he's in a third costume again am i right he seems to be in a partial David Tennant costume. Yes. Hmm. So, yeah, look, Shooty Gatwa could just be a man of many costumes. 
Who knows? Look, absolutely. I mean, we know that in some of the later Pertwee seasons, for example, Pertwee would have a variation on a theme. You'd have the same cut in a different colour or mm. different cuts of the same colour depending on the season. And this this does look a little bit like that. It's um, swapping a shorter coat for a longer coat, that sort of thing. And, but it's still the same sort of, um, you know, 1970s brown. And <laughs> so I, I, I wonder if it's that or, you know, if, if it's just, you know, he gets a bit colder and puts on a leather coat. I don't know. But I must admit, and you know this, Rob, I'm not someone who really notices costumes or gets that excited by costumes, but I will admit I did see this one and I thought that is pretty cool. Yeah, this second costume with the leather coat and such. That's right, yeah. Very much so. And also reminiscent, it must be said, of Lenny Henry's comedy doctor back very, from the mid-80s. Very much so. Yes, a few people have picked that up. That was uh, that was quite fun, yes. Yeah. Complete mm. with a moustache. Alrighty. Dave, have you got something for us? Uh, I've got a couple of things, and the first one I'll kick off with is five new Target novels have been announced. We are always very excited when more Target novels are coming out, but this batch in particular has really piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. We have got one of my favourite Jodie episodes, Kablam, being written by Pete McTighe. Great. Planet of the Ood, which I recommended a couple of episodes ago as a uh, go back and watch for the 10th Doctor's era. You did, yeah. And that's being novelised by Keith Temple. Mm -hmm. Uh, Waters of Mars, a very popular story being novelised by Phil Ford. Mm -hmm. We've got Warrior's Gate, an expanded version of the novelisation by Stephen Gallagher. That's going to be, I think, very, very cool. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Warrior's Gate is kind of... The first time you see Warrior's Gate, it's kind of bizarre and and bonkers. And I think maybe with some more... um, I don't know what he's going to add into it, but maybe with some deeper explanation, some deeper delving into the the background of what's going on, that could be very fascinating. Yeah, it could. And Gallagher's a very good writer and known for his novels. So... I think that that could be a very, very cool addition to the canon. And the previously announced Zygon Invasion by Peter Harness that was meant to be part of the last batch and got pushed back is being released as part of this batch. Well, that's really interesting. I've got to say, you know, I sort of dropped off collecting the new targets once I finished my my set. I can't remember which was the last story that hadn't been novelised that I got, but it was in like the first or second round of these new targets. Do you recall which one it might have been? It was a Tom Baker one, I think. No, I can't say I do. Might have been one of the Douglas Adams stories, something like that. I've kind of ruled a line under targets, although, oh gosh, Warrior's Gate, an updated version. Oh, that's tempting. Yeah, look, four of the five of these I will definitely get, and then I'll be left in the position, as I've mentioned before, of do I buy the Zygon Invasion just because I don't want to have one target novel I don't have, Mm. knowing that I'm probably not going to read it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, do I spend $20, $25 on a book I know I'm probably not going to read just so I've got a full set of, well, yes. You are a Doctor Who fan, Dave. You will do it one day. Yes. <laughs> yes, let's be honest, yes. Shall we move on? Yeah. Alrighty, I got some Big Finish news for the 60th anniversary. Obviously, Big Finish is going to do a 60th anniversary story towards the end of this year, and it had previously been announced that it had people like Tom Baker, Peter Davis, and Colin Baker Sylvester McCoy, Paul McGann, Christopher Eccleston, David Tennant in it. You know, a lot of ex-Doctors. But now we're starting to hear even more names coming out of the woodwork, particularly after the Gallifrey One convention earlier this month. We're starting to hear that Stephen Noonan, Michael Troughton and Tim Trelaw are going to be on board as the first three Doctors. So there is a lot of Doctors in this story, we know that. Michelle Gomez is back as Missy. Georgia Tennant's going to show up as the Doctor's daughter, Jenny. 
And there is just this, the list goes on and on and on, Dave. I, I'm not even going to sit here and read it all out because I'll just, I probably bore our listeners. And it's got me thinking, what is the storyline of this going to be with so many characters? You know, are they just cameos or are they going to actually have a, a real meaningful sort of role to play in the story? I don't know. I, surely they can't all do something meaningful. There's just way too many characters. Yeah, and that's sort of my thinking as well. Is it something like the Five Doctors where there's a few main characters covering the various different plot strands and they bump into cameos as they go along or mm. something like the Eight Doctors, which is very similar in that that sort of sense, or even something like the original script for The Dark Dimension, which was going to be the 30th anniversary story, where there was one Doctor who sort of carried the thing, and it was going to be Tom, controversially, but then mm-hmm. there'll be little sort of cameos and little set pieces with a whole lot of other characters. So it could be that, but look, I mean, it's it's big finish. They've, uh, they've, they've never been known for their restraint or holding back. <laughs> No, no, indeed. <laughs> so if you can, you, you do. And yeah, look, I'm sure that'll be very interesting. Yeah, all right. And have you got something to round out the news? Yes, look, one more announcement of something that's coming out. We keep an eye here as well on the Blu-rays. And Season 9 has been announced as the next one coming out. A lot of people thought it was going to be a Davo, but it is mm. another Pertwee. It's Season 9. Uh, look, for my money, probably the weakest of the five Pertwees, which is still very, very good. It's got some very yeah, good yeah. stories in there. I'm curious to see whether they give us the original Day of the Daleks or the bastardized Day of the Daleks or both. <laughs> um, that's going to be very interesting to me because I, I, I didn't really like the, the, the redone Day of the Daleks. But Oh, really? With all the extra scenes and stuff? Look, some of the extra effects and stuff were kind of interesting, but... Uh, when they made cuts to the dialogue to make it run a little bit smoother, Nick Briggs sort of comes in and, and does the Dalek voices, and it just sounds wrong with mm. Nick Briggs sort of doing a, a, a 21st century Dalek voice on a very 1970s Dalek. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it just it, it just doesn't quite work for me. So, look, I suspect that they'll give us both. I do too. But uh, I, I certainly hope they at least give us the original. Yeah, oh, they'd have to, surely. Well, you hope so. Mm. But yeah, no, looking forward to that. I collect all the Blu-rays and they're always a good excuse to go back and watch a season of Classic Who and I'm looking forward to this one. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I do exactly the same and I shift the old DVDs off to my mate Jason. He appreciates that. It's a win for everybody. Yeah. Moving on to short topics, I want to briefly mention that uh, Janet Fielding and Sophie Aldred are coming to Australia. Not together, I must uh, I must say. This is actually something our friends at the Sirens of Audio podcast are doing. Tickets are on sale now. Janet's in Sydney, Hobart and Brisbane in April. And Sophie, meanwhile, is doing Sydney in May. Now, for more information, hit up sirensofaudio.com and you can you can have a look and see what's happening, buy tickets, all that good stuff. I really wanted to mention that because I think it's a brilliant thing that our friends over there at Sirens are doing. Yeah, it absolutely is. And in a number of our episodes, Rob, where you and I have chatted, and particularly in episodes where uh, my friends down here in Melbourne, uh, Richard and Rob and Mark and the like, have chatted, and we've been talking about conventions of the past mm-hmm. and how there's been this real commercialization of conventions, particularly in Australia now because of the just the cost of getting guests out here. And, and I know that the guys over at Sirens are very keen to bring back that old school vibe of fan events run by fans for fans. Very similar to what you're seeing happening in a few cases in the UK as well with something like the Capitol, which has really gone mm-hmm. back to that, that old school sort of 
fan event. Uh, so look, I really hope they can pull it off because I think it's what a lot of us would like to see. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really keen and really supportive. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to see Janet or Sophie in a, in a small sort of environment, more intimate, hit this up. Yeah, so look, Rob, I've got two short topics this month, a long one and a short one. And I'll start mm-hmm. with the long one because this is something I wanted to have a bit of a chat about. Now, back in the day, I was a bit of a fan of Glee. I'm not quite sure why. And I, I go back and I watch it now and I'm not quite sure what I was thinking at the time. But it was, <laughs> it, was, it was massive at the time and I was really, really into it at the time. And this is, of course, a TV show by the showrunner, the US showrunner, Ryan Murphy. Mm. Now... I uh, have started listening to a Glee podcast called That's What You Really Missed, which is done by two of the actors, the actors who played uh, Tina and Artie. And -hmm. it's a professional podcast. It's very, very well done. And I dipped into a couple of episodes, particularly some interviews with the cast. But they had a large interview with Ryan Murphy. Um, And in fact, he said, look, I don't normally do these sort of tell-all interviews, but because you're friends... I'll sit down with you for as long as it takes and I'll get it all and we'll talk about all these things we should talk about. And it's over two parts and goes for about three hours. Now, listeners might be wondering why I'm bringing up Ryan Murphy in a Glee podcast. And it's because some of the parallels between Ryan Murphy and Russell T Davies, I think are really, really interesting. And because of that, some of the things that Murphy said during these interviews, I think is really interesting and giving us a bit of an insight and a perspective into what happened uh, with Russell T Davies' Doctor Who. Now, look, both of these uh, individuals are people who had uh, initial sort of success in television. They were they were productive and you know paid writers. But then they sort of had their breakout series, um, Queer as Folk for Russell and Nip Tuck for Ryan, mm-hmm. which were not massive commercial successes, but very big and solid successes, and particularly very much critical successes. Out of which they got to do another show, sort of of their choosing and Russell chose to do Doctor Who Ryan chose to do what became Glee Uh, in both cases the network executives were not quite sure that this was what they should be doing and in both cases it was women who really were backing these shows and saying no you've got to let them have their head you've got to let them run with it and and, and go and do it and so they both ended up in very similar positions look they're both uh, gay men and they both have scattered a certain amount of LGBT content in their shows and in their, their content over the last 20 years, um, and they're both excellent writers. I think that Ryan Murphy and Russell T. Davies at their best are two of the, if not the best, writers on television at the moment. Something like It's a Sin, a very English scandal you know, we've talked about, I'm very big fans of. Uh, with Ryan Murphy, something like the Versace episode of American Horror Story was just fantastic television. When they're right, they're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. But I also love the fact that both of them now are that senior in their industry that they can basically make the tv shows they want to make and they'll get money to do it and sometimes these things are phenomenal successes sometimes they don't quite work and each of them have got series that i've started and just gone no i'm not finishing this but even when they fail they fail trying to do something new and different and innovative and push the envelope i really admire them for doing that in an industry that is very very safe more so now i think than ever and um, mm. that's really good. But but to sort of talk a bit about some of the stuff that Murphy said that I think relates to Russell T Davies, he talks about how when he became the showrunner of Glee, there isn't a showrunner's course or showrunner's school to go to. Even in television industry, there are workshops and training you do to be a scriptwriter. You have proper courses to become a director. You can go to film school and learn how to be a producer. But mm. nobody tells you how to be a showrunner, so you sort of get thrown in. And I think that was very much the experience that, that RTD had. 
But in both their cases, you know, their shows took off. And Murphy talks about what it's like to be putting this show together, doing the first episode, the first part of the season, not knowing how it's going to go down, not knowing how it's going to be. The crew and the cast just put everything into it. And suddenly it's got millions of viewers. Suddenly it's the number one show on the network. Suddenly everybody wants a piece of you. The money's flying in. Everybody's talking about everything. And and to give you one example, Murphy says, you know, he went from begging artists to let them do covers of their songs on Glee to suddenly Lady Gaga is ringing him directly going, would you like an advanced copy of my next album? Because I'd like you to do some shows from it on Glee. <laughs> wow. Um, so, you know, a really big change there. And, and Murphy talks about what it was like to have to write all the scripts and run the show and all the rest of it. But a large part of your day is suddenly there I am in meetings about merchandise and suddenly I'm signing off licenses and suddenly I'm doing quality checks on proposed merchandise. He talks about how he knew the cast and crew needed to break and between seasons one and two, there was going to be a proper six-week holiday they could all have. Then the executives had come along and said, hey, we want to take this show on the road. We want to have a Glee stage show over that six-week break. And he's like, oh, look, I think we all need a break. And then they back the dump truck of money up to his desk and mm. okay I guess we're all going on tour this 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 month <laughs> and again you know what it must have been like for Russell T Davies to just be thinking I'm just a guy writing some scripts and hiring some actors and doing tone meetings but now I've got spin-offs now I've got all this stuff going on all these licenses I've got to do and the, the final point that I think was particularly interesting is Murphy talks about and, and the actors that are interviewing raise this they say look we know that there were troubles on the Glee set. We know that there were issues with some of the cast members and all the rest of it. Just just like Doctor Who, Glee has been in the media for all the wrong reasons at times because of things that happened back in the day that, in hindsight, you know, weren't acceptable and, and you know weren't at the mm. time. And they sort of said, you know, Ryan, you hired us. We loved you. You're really doing part of the show. And then suddenly you just weren't there. Or when you were there, it was all about, I've got to get this take done. We've got to get this in the can. We've got stuff to do. Go, go, go. And Murphy says, yeah, I just, I didn't have the capacity to be sort of worried about, are my cast feeling safe? Are my cast feeling happy? Is the crew working well together? Mm. And when we think about the stuff that happened with RTD's first go at Doctor Who, you know, the stuff with Barrowman, the alleged stuff with Noel Clark, etc. Mm. And there has been that bit sort of talk of, well, where was Russell T Davies? You know, he should have been on the set. Was he condoning all this? And this really highlighted to me just how much those showrunners suddenly had to do that wouldn't be expected of 95% of showrunners. And Davies probably wasn't there all that much. He was in meetings. He was writing scripts. And suddenly you've got this monster that no mm. person can really control, let alone be worried about every day on set. You know, what's the vibe like? Is everything going well? And, and it does get away from things. And Murphy said, yeah, it got away from me. And it was only in the later series that as people just started to really break down that he's gone, okay, I need to start saying no to stuff. And then there was some you know, really tragic stuff that happened you know, on the Glee set we don't need to talk about. But mm. I just thought those parallels are so interesting, I thought. And, and just, I think, gave us an insight into what these showrunners are doing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think people don't really have a good view of what someone like RTD does. And it's only compounded like when... They were filming the public scenes for David Tennant's three-parter and Russell was showing up on set in public and it was like a rock star coming in, you know, and the, the crowds were like cheering him as he'd appear on set. 
And I think that's probably not a really good indication of what it's normally like yeah. <laughs> for, for him. Like if he's writing half of a full series and stuff, I don't think he's probably showing up on set like that all the time. This was clearly a case where he'd written three episodes as it was and he had the ability to then just go and show up because there weren't all these other things to do, but normally there would be. So I think that's probably a really good insight into what being a showrunner is like in general from Ryan and what it would have been like for RTD, particularly looking after Torchwood, looking after Doctor Who, thinking of the next series, thinking of merchandise, because merchandise was mega in the early days of RTD's reign. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, good, good stuff. absolutely. And, you know, Moffat would have had very similar things, but at least Moffat had RTD to look to. Yes. You know, RTD kind of set the thing up so Moffat could say, okay, I won't make that mistake or I, I will give it a bit more time. He was able to learn from it. So, yeah. That was interesting. But look, I've, I've talked a lot on that short topic. Rob, what have you got for us? I have a very, very short topic here, Dave, and that's that selling my Doctor Who collection has begun, folks. <laughs> You've been threatening I, for a while. I have been threatening for a while. I started talking about this uh, last year, and now that we're in two months into 2023, it's finally happening. I'm starting to sell my Doctor Who collection, folks, ending around the time this podcast goes out. I've started with a bunch of Telos novellas if anyone remembers those wow. tell us publishing used to do these very thin hardcover novellas there's about 15 in the set i'm getting rid of those and i'm also testing the waters with my second doctor past doctor adventures from bbc books i'm putting the whole set of those out onto ebay and just seeing how they go interesting what percentage of your collection do you think is going to go by the time i'm done i'd say half of it Wow, okay. Yeah, because it's going to mostly be the fiction stuff. Right. Like, I will get rid of the NAs, I'll get rid of the MAs, I'll get rid of the PDAs and EDAs. I'll probably get rid of Big Finish CDs and things like that. And maybe I'll get rid of the NSAs, although they're so small and cute and easy to read. I think I might try and blast through a few more of those before I sell them, but we'll see. We'll see. Is there much of a market for Big Finish CDs now? I think if you find the right people, there is. Right. Because... There's always people coming along and falling in love with the McGann Doctor and, you know, wanting to have not just the downloads, but the physical discs of all of McGann. And that's what I've got. Excellent. <laughs> Literally every one of them on, on CD. So if I find the right people, yeah, they'll sell. Oh, good luck. Thank you very much. Uh, my short, short topic is just to mention that I did go away for a week in Queensland and the Gold Coast over the summer. And mm -hmm. as I often do when I travel, I took a Virgin New Adventure with me to reread. And in this case, I reread the very first one, Time Worm Genesis, wow. which I hadn't read since I first read it aged about 11 back when it came <laughs> out. It's known as one of the more controversial ones because John Peel did try to make it very adult and did so in a way that many people thought was a bit puerile. Mm. Um, and I've got to say, when I was 11, a lot of that kind of passed me by. I was sort of aware of it, but it didn't really mean anything to me. Mm -hmm. Reading it now, much older, I saw it and I was kind of indifferent to it. It was sort of like, okay, I knew this was coming. Yep, there's a bit more of it than I thought, but, you know, oh, well, this is this is what it was. And so it didn't really phase me. Um, mm. But the plot, I thought, was actually really, really strong. I thought as an adventure, it stood up really, really well. The villain was great. The Doctor and Ace were really good. The historical setting was really effective. There was a couple of nice twists. And it ended with a nice, exciting climax. So, look, it's not the best NA, and, and it has got some problems. But as a nice little 250-page adventure with the Seventh Doctor and Ace, 
I've got to admit, I really enjoyed it. Oh, very good. That's kind of Peel's wheelhouse there. Just good, solid adventures, I think. Yeah, look, I, th- I think it is. He's, he's that kind of a writer and he does what he does and he, he does it well. Yeah, it might not be cerebral, but it's uh, it does the job. Very, very much so. And look, there'll be much more cerebral ones to come as the range went on. Now, Rob, we have got, for the first time ever, a fifth short topic because something <laughs> historic happened this morning. Yeah, look, I didn't know whether I should drop one of my earlier short topics. I thought, no, bugger it, I'll do those and I'll do this. And I really didn't know where to put this story as it's breaking news in a sense. It only happened earlier today on the day we're recording this. But at the same time, it relates to something that happened 35 years ago. So maybe not breaking news in that sense. But I'll stop teasing. Basically, an Aussie Doctor Who fan, Scott Wilcoxon, has digitised and uploaded the three episodes of the afternoon show from 1988 that feature the Doctor Who quiz that I've mentioned a couple of times, probably each year on this podcast, when it comes up from time to time. It's the quiz that has myself, one of our great listeners, Mark Douglas, is on it, Doctor Who author Kate Orman is on it. Not that she's even written her first novel at the stage of being on this, I've got to say, back in 88. And others, you know, competing for fabulous prizes like Doctor Who videos and book vouchers. And these ran before episodes of Remembrance of the Daleks back in 1988 on the ABC here in Australia. And yes, for people who have heard the story before, These are episodes which no longer exist in the ABC archives, the afternoon show. That is not Doctor Who. Of course we have Doctor Who. I went searching for them back in 2015, Dave, and I was told by the ABC, no, we've got rid of them. So for years I've been hoping someone would show up with them. And today they did. Isn't that amazing? It, it was. I saw your tweet very first thing this morning. I haven't watched all of it, but I did watch your segment and sort of flick through the others. I, I will get to them. I, I've got to say, Teenage Rob is very adorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was one of those things of, I, I, I saw you on the video and thought, oh, look, there's Teenage Rob. It, it looks like Rob. Then you opened your mouth. I've gone, wow, he was young. Yeah, I was very, very young. In fact, my work bestie today messaged me and, and referred to me as Baby Rob Irwin. So that was something. Yeah, that was that was very cool. Look, it was fun to see them. Uh, I do remember watching those as they went out. I do remember some of the more controversial questions from that year. Um, the one thing, though, that really did amuse me is I vaguely remember when James Valentine was forced to present the afternoon show and do all this Doctor Who-based stuff that he didn't really seem to have his heart in it. Um, watching it back now, it is very clear he does not want to be there. He is not remotely interested in Doctor Who. He doesn't know why there's a bunch of grown men in a number of cases doing this and the 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 absolute just determination of some of them and, and everything. And, and James is just like, why am I here? I want a real career. Yeah. And it's very funny to look back at. Now, by the time this episode goes out, I'll have taken Scott's video, sliced it up into its three component episodes and uploaded it to our channel on YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash at the Doctor Who show or the DW show, I should say. So if you want to go and have a look at the episodes there, they're up there by the time this episode goes out. And Dave, I've also got some very rough plans for this, but basically... I want to take this footage in the future, and I have talked to Scott Wilcoxon about this because he's the one who digitized it and all of that, and he's very cool with us using the footage and such. I'd like to record a bit of a monologue about what the afternoon show was and how the quiz came up and who the people are on it and what it was like being in the TV studio that day. And I also know that Kate Orman has recently made comments 
precisely about the afternoon show on an appearance on the Sirens of Audio podcast recently. So I want to take all these bits and pieces and and make, well, documentary is way too grand a word for it, but I'd like to do something with it and really explain it to people so that they don't just have the episodes to watch, but they actually have a bit more... Um, value-added content from people who were there just talking about it. I, I think that could be fun to do. I am a primary source for this. I'm going to use myself to talk about it. Yeah, I think there is something to say there because it is an interesting turning point in Doctor Who in Australia because it is where Doctor Who goes from family viewing at 6 or 6.30pm paired with the goodies that you could sort of watch around dinner before the ABC News at 7 to being part of a kids slash young adult magazine program with a whole mm. lot of other kid and young adult stuff stuff and you know a young presenter that they're trying to you know give a bit of experience to just thrown out there to do interviews and stuff so yeah I think there is something to talk about because it, it is where the ABC makes Doctor Who a kid show very much so yeah so look out for that later in the year of course i'll let you know on the podcast when we when we've put that together but it's a little project i've got up my sleeve excellent well we've had two months of news and short topics but rob it's time for the topic it's time for the topic which is the time meddler dave we threw out four stories as i mentioned at the start of this episode the time meddler the mask of mandragora they were my two picks and colony in space and dragonfire which were your two picks and we had 191 votes. I wanted 200 votes, Dave. I'm really annoyed we didn't get 200 we, votes, we, but we, we got We've cracked 200 once. Let's see if we can do it again one day. Yeah, that'd be nice. And look, the final wash-up was the Time Meddler came in first with 35.1%. Mask of Mandragora with 28.8%. So two, two wins for me there. Yes. That's, that's unusual. I've, I've been at the bottom uh, when we've done these uh, more recently. Your stories, Dave, Colony in Space, 20.9%, and Dragonfire, 15.2%, which was kind of surprising to me. Yeah, look, I picked two stories I thought there was a lot to talk about, but you picked two stories that are loved, and there's also lots to talk about. So look, that's fine. I'm happy to talk about any of them. And I've got to say the Time Meddler was quite convenient because my Australian copy of the Season 2 Blu-rays arrived a few weeks ago, and I did start a proper rewatch of all of Season 2 whilst we were doing this, and I did reach the Time Meddler a couple of days ago, so it <laughs> it did it work out well. And I've, I've got to say, I really, really enjoyed that Season 2 rewatch. I mean, many of them are some of my favourite stories already. The Rescue, The Dalek Invasion of Earth, The Romans, The Crusade, they're all good. I enjoyed The Chase, watching The Web Planet back. I, I realised that I loved the first half of The Web Planet, but, mm. but once the Optera arrive, it all just gets a little bit silly. And then by the time you get to the end, it's it's really quite dull. So look, great start. Poor, <laughs> poor, poor finish. Space Museum, I still think it's very poor. And I still think it's appallingly badly directed. But I did appreciate watching it again for the first time since... Ni- since the first time since 2013, it's the last time I watched it. Um, I did sort of appreciate what they were trying to do, but I don't think they succeeded. Uh, The chase is fun, but look, we're here at the Time Meddler. Rob, when's the first time you experienced the Time Meddler? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I know I definitely saw this on a BBC video. So there's a line in the sand to begin with. Whether I'd seen it on UK TV back in the 90s, I may have, I probably had. But I really don't remember. Similarly, it may have been one of the black and white stories kicking around in the local fan club in the 80s. But I don't remember that either. You know, memory is weird like that. I can remember very specific things from that time, yet something like this, 
I really have no idea about, even though there's a good chance I saw it. So for better or worse, I'll say it was a BBC video of my older brothers. So we're talking early 2000s, let's say. Oh, wow, okay. I Mm. can certainly remember reading the Target novel. It came out in 88, Mm. and so it would have been one that I did read when I was at primary school. And I do remember it being a really interesting idea that did, did resonate with me. I first saw this sometime around 1992, and I can say that because the BBC repeated the Time Meddler in 1992, along with the Mind Robber and the Sea Devils, up for random reasons I don't know. Mm. And I know that the version that I saw as a, as a bootleg copy was from that broadcast because it had the BBC iDance on, right. on, the, on the start of it. So it was a broadcast version of the story. Now, it was probably third or fourth generation by the time it got to me in Australia. But it was, it was, you know, it wasn't DVD or Blu-ray quality, but it was better than sort of the fifth and sixth and tenth generation black and whites <laughs> that were mainly what I saw of the Heart and Lyra back in those days. So around about 92 is the first time I saw it. Which brings us now to watching it this time, Rob. What are your first thoughts? What is your overview? Mm, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for this story. I mean, I should have mentioned reading the Target novel as well. 88 was my period of Target. So, yeah, of course, I read the Target novel back then. Um, With a really good cover that has a time meddler who looks nothing like Peter Butterworth. (laughs) Nothing at all. (laughs) But look, yeah, yeah, I've always had a soft spot for it. I know it's a story that doesn't set a lot of people's worlds on fire. You hardly ever see people talking about it. But I think it's charming. And I think it's conceptually the series starting to reach out and bring in new concepts the main one here of course the monk is a time lord with a tardis not that we know the term time lord back at that stage in the 60s not that we know the planet gallifrey and even the monk refers to it as a time machine not a tardis because i guess we're still in that phase where tardis was a name made up by susan and not a not a name that the doctor's people actually use we're still in that weird sort of time and all of that to me is quite fascinating in a similar way that the War Games is fascinating, where we get this better look at the Doctor's people and such, but it's still not fleshed out even years after this. You know, it was a slow process that fans of the 80s, like us, grew up knowing. We already knew what happened here and what happened in War Games and in Deadly Assassin and stuff. We already knew that stuff. It was a complete thing when we came along. But for people living through this era, how amazing would it have been to get to the end of Episode 3? of this story and it's like the monk has a TARDIS and they go inside like you know stop the press your head would just be exploding yeah you've said a lot there <laughs> sorry no that's okay I got carried away no, that's okay that's okay it's interesting what you said about its its regard generally because I've noticed over the last little while it it's done very very well in a lot of polls when people do twitter polls of different stories it seems to do very very well over at the diddly dumb podcast when they did their hartnell special where they got their listeners to all vote for their favorite hartnells the time meddler topped that poll really it did and oh my god it's interesting i think it's it's now sort of up there with the war machines as that story that people who aren't particular fans of the hartnell era or haven't watched all the hartnell era nominate as the Hartnell that they really enjoy. It's the Time Metal and it's the War Machines. Which is interesting because for me, as someone who is a, a big Hartnell fan and a big fan of the era, I would put it very much in the middle of the Hartnell stories. There are many, many stories that I 
regard far better than this. Mm. I enjoy it. It's very easy to watch. It's good. And there are there are many, many aspects of this that are really good and, to my mind, it raise it higher than it could have been. And we'll talk about those. But there are one or two things in there that I think are very much to its detriment and hold it back and mm. and did mean that I thought it was a good story but but not nearly a great story. Right. I'm really interested to, to hear that, though, about Diddly Dumb uh, because the War Machines, for example, I will always go into bat for and I think it is a bit underrated, so I'm surprised to hear that was so high as well. I just must be mixing with the wrong people, Dave, because in my world, this and the War Machines just aren't highly regarded i think in the uk as well there's a very big soft spot for the time meddler because of that 92 repeat so Ah. a a lot of people who are our age that might have been the only hartnell they saw for a very long time and it was one that they saw on on, on broadcast so i think it's got a bit of a bit of regard for it there as well Mm. now this as much as i can make out is the first pseudo historical am i right in saying that Yes, it's the first one that brings in science fiction-y things. We'd, we'd had the Romans, which was the comedy historical. Yes. And then the Crusade came back and did the very the very straight historical. But yes, this is the first pseudo-historical. Yeah, and we still get some real historicals after it. I mean, the Myth Makers, Massacre, Gunfighters, uh, well, the high Smugglers, the high Highlanders. Yeah, um, but this is the first time we're back in history where the plot revolves around something not from that era. In, in this case, a Time Lord trying to change history. I think that's probably a good place to start. This is a pseudo-historical. Again, the show reaching out, doing something new to me. Yeah, it it does. It's still very much a Hartnell historical because not only is it set during an actual historic event, like a lot of Hartnell stories were, but the audience is educated about that. I think I counted three separate occasions where the Doctor gives the little speech about, oh, well, King Harold had to go and fight the Battle of Stamford Bridge before he did the Battle of Hastings. Mm -hmm. And and that was sort of thing. And if I can remember as as a kid learning about that part of history from watching the Time Meddler and then going and learning more about it so you know it, it did work in that sense so so it does have that real historical sort of educational thing that a lot of the Hartnell era did but you're right it's different because suddenly you have the wristwatch being found you have the monks chanting and suddenly it's oh my god that's actually a record with the gramophone going down and all mm. the little things and then suddenly the monks using an electric fryer and it, it goes from there and it, it does add a whole different dimension and and you're right for the audience at the time they would have gone, oh, okay, this is one of those ones in the past. Oh, they're doing 1066. Huh? That's Mm. different. And look, for a modern example, I would look to something like, say, Rosa, which is full of historical things that happened, like the incident on the bus and so on. But at the same time, there's an alien running around doing alien stuff. It's in that same vein, you know, which is a style of story that's still with us today. Yeah, and it's a style that I think really came to dominate for quite a while and, and really set the template for a lot of very well-regarded, if not classic, stories. I mean, stuff like The Time Warrior, Talons of Wang Chiang, Horror of Fang Rock, they're all pseudo-historicals and they're all very well-regarded. Yeah, absolutely. Can I talk about what holds this back for me, Rob? Yeah, go for it. It's the structure of the story. Uh, and there's there's two sort of parts to this one is that it's very very obvious that Hartnell has got his week's leave in part two and I think it was actually a mistake to have the pre-record of him banging on the door to sort of try and pretend that Hartnell was there because 
all it sort of really does is highlight that he's not there. Um, so I think I think that was a mistake, but it does mean that things do noticeably slow down in part two particularly because Hartnell is really driving this. The mm. other problem with the structure is, look, I agree, as you said, the cliffhanger to part three is one of the greats of Doctor Who history. It's a TARDIS, the monk's got a TARDIS. That is show-shattering, mind-bending. It's a really big deal. The problem is the story wants it to be the part three cliffhanger, which means you have three episodes of not getting to that point, and then a fourth of, well, now we know who the monk is and what his plot is, and we've got to stop him. And I think that, again, in part three, I could feel the plot slowing down because we need to get to 25 minutes to have this cliffhanger. And there is a certain amount of Stephen and Vicky just wandering from the monastery back to the village and back to the monastery because, hey, we've got to fill out the time. And and that means it does struggle a bit. The, the fourth part is excellent when everybody's on set, everybody's on deck, and, and we've worked out what's going on and it brings it all together. It's really good. I'm not saying the other three are bad. Part one's really good. But, mm. but I, I think that the structure of the story means that it noticeably slows and drags in those middle two episodes. If we had Hartnell on board for the second episode, could that reveal have been at the end of the second episode? I I think that's how you would do it in hindsight, absolutely. You'd you'd have two episodes of what's going on and then two episodes of we know what's going on, now we've got to stop it. Mm. It's funny you mentioned the pre-record of his uh, dialogue too because I was watching a... um a grand tour video last night where Richard Hammond and James May were on there looking at the vehicles from the Scandi Flick special. Oh, yes, I know the one. I've seen it, yes. And and they've got Clarkson pre-recorded as if he's trapped in the boot of his Audi. Yes. and It's It's exactly the same conceit. It's exactly the same conceit. It's also very obvious that Hammond and May don't actually know what Clarkson has recorded, so they're just giving very generic reactions, hoping it fits his his (laughs) pre-recorded. Yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in because I watched it last night. Yes, no, enough. I have seen it. That's, that's, that's very funny. Rob, I've talked about um, what I thought about the pacing. Do, do you agree? And what did you like about it? About the pacing or the episode? The episode. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to segue <laughs> into a good point. <laughs> well, look, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. I want to talk about the monk. Okay. Because the monk makes this interesting to me because he's not a, you know, I'm evil kind of guy, you know. He's not like that in the slightest. He just like to tweak some history, Dave, and tweak it in probably a positive way or what he at least feels will be positive. He thinks Harold will be a good long-term ruler. And he already talks about changing history anyway already. He's helped make Stonehenge and things like that, which is something I think modern people quite enjoy going to visit. So was that necessarily a bad thing? Look, I know it goes against the rules of the Time Lords and the Doctor gets really aggro about it. But the situation isn't, oh, this guy wants to mess everyone up or this guy wants to rule the world. He just wants to tweak some stuff and have some fun. I find that really interesting and I actually find it a more realistic motivation than half the stuff the master ever does for example you know the master's always doing this really weird stuff and when you stop and think think, you think to yourself is that really a motivation this to me is much more of a motivation if you had a time machine would you not be tempted to go back and just tweak something dave yeah it's really interesting I'll, i'll say right at the top peter butterworth's performance is absolutely one of the things i mentioned earlier as being a thing in the story that elevates 
is. And even when the story's dragging a bit, as I identified, his performance keeps you involved. And it's really, really good. It's really light of touch. It's, uh, it subtle is the wrong word. I think subtle is an overused word, but it, it is light of touch. And it's, it's fun because of that. Well, I've got some thoughts on that too, but go on. Uh, but, but yeah, look, it's interesting as well. He's explicitly identified as not being a contemporary of the Doctor's and of being somebody who's about 50 years behind the Doctor, which I think mm. is interesting and a real contrast to what would come later where the Master was at school with the Doctor, the Rati's the same age as the Doctor, Drax was at college with the Doctor, like they were all contemporaries, whereas the Monkey's explicitly someone who's come a bit later. And of course... We're not contrasting the monk with the master because the master hasn't been invented yet for, for the audiences watching this as, as it goes out. Mm. The contrast is with the doctor. And this is the doctor who has had those big dramas in the Aztecs about you can't change history. And he's lectured people about how you can't interfere with Napoleon's plans in the reign of terror. So it is actually a contrast to the doctor that we're seeing here. And, and you're right, he's just having fun. That's an interesting motivation. But it is very, very clearly said as well that his morals are very, very dubious and he's very happy to blow up thousands of Vikings just for a laugh. So there is a, a very wicked aspect to him. There is. But the, the benefits of blowing up those Vikings, that would seem like a, a small price to pay for what he may cause to happen if you see what I mean. Yeah, look, I, I do see what you mean. And, and the story sort of moves around that in a very light manner as well. I, mm. I, I think it's explicitly stated by Stephen there to just give a little bit of menace to the, the character and just make sure we know that the stakes are a little bit higher than they might otherwise have been, particularly given that Butterworth is playing him in such a you know lovable sort of manner. We mm. need to just be reminded that, okay, look, I know this guy's a bit of fun and he's lovable and, hey, it's Peter Butterworth. But, you know, he's also a mass murderer. So, you know, let's not love him too much. <laughs> now, I said I had thoughts on Peter Butterworth. So let me get to those before we, we move off the topic. Peter Butterworth himself, removed from the character of the monk, is really interesting. As when you read people's thoughts on this story, they go on and on about him like he's some sort of scenery-chewing carry-on character. And he's really not. Like, the character is really fun to watch and a bit quirky and interesting. You described it as, as a light touch, I think, a moment ago. I never find him particularly over the top or weird, yet that's often how he's written up. Yeah. And that's something I don't understand. It's like, did the people actually watch this story or is that just received fan wisdom or something? Yeah, and it's also interesting. A lot of people who wrote a lot of that received fan wisdom have obviously grown up with Peter Butterworth in Carry On films and a whole lot of other stuff. And so, sure. so, so they, they know who he is. Whereas, look, when I saw The Time Meddler, I'd never heard of Peter Butterworth. I didn't, I'd never seen anything that Peter Butterworth had, had also been in. Um, I think the only other thing that I've ever seen him in was a very bad sitcom with John Ingman, uh, when John Ingman sort of walked away from Are You Being Served for a, for a, for a year. And uh, he and Peter Butterworth did this really terrible sitcom where Ingman's character inherits a rock factory in Brighton or something, and the, the, the sort of the, the the running you know catchphrase is "How's your rock cock?" and you know that's about that's about the that's about the depth of the humor. Wow. Yeah, and and yeah. I, I think from memory, Peter Butterworth plays the sort of the factory shop steward. You know, the guy who like you know oh, I've got a new owner, but I'm the guy who has to run the factory or something, and it's I, I it's not great. Right. It's um okay. it, it's it's what John Ingman was doing when uh. Uh, what's her name was Mrs. Slocum was doing um come back Mrs. Noah okay, and it's about as right. good <laughs> okay let's rule a line under that one yeah but the point is like 
I think if you're not part of that generation of English fans, you don't bring anything to this about who Peter Butterworth is. He's just the actor playing the monk. Yeah. And I don't think he does it in an over-the-top way. I think he's really quite believable in this role. Yeah, he is. And he, he's also got some funny lines, but there's also some really quite... Again, dark's too strong and overused a word, but the moment when he sends the Vikings down a blind alley, knowing that by the time they get back to where he was, the villagers will have caught up with them so they can kill the Vikings while he gets away. You know, it's subtly done, but it's very, very like, okay, he, he knew what he was doing there. Oh, of course. But look, even scenes like where he just wants to get on with his plans and you've got villagers with a with a hurt villager saying, oh, can we bring this hurt guy in? And he's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, you just see his exasperation. Yes. He just wants to get on with having fun. Yes, and look, the final point I'll make there is I like that the thing that really makes his plan come unstuck isn't so much anything the Doctor does, although the Doctor gives him his comeuppance at the end after the events. Um, mm. It's the fact that he's like all these these local villagers, these local primitives, they're, they're too stupid to know that you know I'm lying to them, but they're not, and they absolutely work out what his plan is and what he's up to, and they're the ones that go and ruin it for him. So I sort of, I like that, that arrogance bringing him down. Yeah, very, very much so. Dave, this is our first proper Stephen story where he's a companion, and what a great intro, just staggering into shot with his beard i love the bearded Stephen look dave and he's and his toy panda you know his disbelief that the tardis is a time machine is a bit labored at times but it's understandable when he's wandering around 1066 and then finding things like a wristwatch you can almost understand his confusion although the mere fact he's no longer on mechanist must show him that you know this crazy box has taken him somewhere quite magically but look i i quite like steven so of course i'm going to be all over this being his first adventure how about you yeah i think he's really good it's interesting to me that this is only the second time in the show's history that we've had a companion introduced mm. and vicky got an entire two-parter in which to do that steven gets basically the back end of um episode six of The Chase, and then, yeah, as you say, there's a good five to ten minutes of them in the TARDIS actually taking the time, and then all of episode one really is just about introducing Stephen to the viewer and introducing Stephen to the TARDIS, and there is lots of, well, this is what we do, and this is how it works, and, and, and it is just so much more detailed and thorough than I think we'll ever get again, mm. which was just good to show, but look, look, Peter Purvis just commands the role to start off with. Uh, he's clearly got a good relationship with William Hartnell and their banter and their comic timing together is really good. He clearly gets on with Maureen O'Brien and, and just she enjoys having someone to sort of not argue with, but sort of cross swords with a little bit. And he's trying to sort of put her down and she's trying to put him down. And they're, they're just finding this level of, okay, you know, this is I'm, I'm the experienced one here. You might be the big, big space adventurer, <laughs> but I've been doing this a bit longer than you have, so you know your place. Um, it's it's good. It's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, Vicky is well settled into the TARDIS at this point and does get to play that sort of senior companion who who knows stuff and, and has a better read, perhaps, on how to have an adventure, especially when the Doctor's missing for much of the story. And Vicky gets to sort of take a bit of a lead, even with Stephen's big presence there. Yeah, she does. I, I think that it's really good that Vicky is not diminished by Stephen coming on board. And in fact, I think Vicky actually expands a bit by... Stephen coming on board and, and and also the fact that the TARDIS crew has now for the first time gone down to three rather than four and there mm. is a little bit more space for all of those characters 
to breathe a bit more, including the Doctor. The Doctor now has a bit more space. And, you know, we are now at this point where the Doctor is very clearly the star of the show. It's not the ensemble with Ian and Barbara as almost co-leads that it was two years ago. Yeah, exactly. I want to bring up a point here. Now, I've said that a couple of things have livened what could have been a, a, a dull and dragging story. That's Butterworth's performance. That's the interesting historical and pseudo-historical take. But the third thing for me was the direction. And mm-hmm. this is Douglas Campfield. And we sometimes forget because Douglas Campfield is so associated with those big classics of the uh, 70s. We sometimes forget that he was around in the 60s as well. And indeed yeah. in the Hartnell era. And his direction here is absolutely amazing and even more so when you do pause and remember that a lot of these shots were being done as live with the camera having to know exactly where to go the actors moving with it and then they'll switch the visual mixer would switch live between camera one and camera two then back to camera one and then the move there and then camera three and it was all being mm-hmm. done you know edited in the inside the camera which is just extraordinary there's there are scenes for example there's one where uh, Woolnoff and his friends come back into the village and the camera starts with Edith and then as Woolnoff comes in the camera meets him and then circles with him so that now it's facing him with its back to Edith and it's just it's just the way that it all sort of works together uh, the mm-hmm. way that you know that shot you talk about where Stephen's first seen and it starts off on the panda and then it pulls out and there yeah. are a number of ones that do that there's ones for example where they start on the frying pan that the monk's using and then they pull out. There are others where they go back in. There are others where the camera picks up a very particular part of the scene. And this would have been all done simply by the cameraman. And yeah. it's really complicated stuff, but it works so well. And there's there's a real dynamism to the direction of this that, that contrasts with the very flat direction of the Space Museum two stories ago and the very that'll do direction of the chase one story ago. Uh, this is this is actually hard to do and Campfield does it extraordinarily well. And he, he would have been a young director at this point, just you know, proving what he could do. Well look, in this area I want to mention I especially love the way they do cloudy skies. And things like this. And for the life of me, I don't know how they've done it. It's too early for CSO. It's certainly not one of those giant LED screens that they put in the background of shows like The Mandalorian these days. So how how is it done? Think of Vicky and Steven at the top of the cliff being filmed from below. And the sky above them is filled with moving clouds. It looks really good now. And for the time on a small black and white TV, I think it would have looked excellent. (laughs) I don't know how they did it. No, um, you've got the staging of the shot where the monk at the end has his face in the door of his TARDIS, which would have been mixing two different shots, again, done as live. And we've also got really good use of uh, stock footage as well to make the Viking invasion actually seem like a Viking invasion. Do you think his head in the TARDIS was mixing scenes or was it possibly a model? It looks to me like it's a mixed scene because it does look like it does look like some other model shots they've had in the past, like the Daleks, for example, where they put in the model sort of behind the actors. So yeah, that, that's what I saw it as being. Um, I, I, I could be wrong. If listeners know, do let us know. But but yeah. not just just to finish a point before, not just the stock footage that makes the Viking invasion seem like one, but but stuff like just putting in a few seconds of stock footage of seagulls 
when they're on mm-hmm. the beach. So they're up, we, we're on the beach, cut to some seagulls, cut back to the studio. Just adds to that feeling that, that you know, we are actually outside. And one thing that, just to expand and finish this, this point about the direction, is that we don't have proper music in this story. And if you look at the credits, it doesn't say composer, it just says percussionist. Because all you have is one guy with obviously a large percussion set just doing lots of sort of very tense booms and and, and, and jingles. Mm-hmm. I know there's been a lot written over the years about Campfield and his relationship with composers and the like, but the best that I've been able to discover over the years seems to be that Campfield was very, very aware of how much incidental music costs. You've got to pay a composer to write the music and conduct it. You've got to pay two, three, four studio performers to perform that music. And it's a very large part of the budget. And so Mm -hmm. he has decided clearly as far back in his career as this, that you can just cut all of that. And normally he'll go and use stock music. And he's certainly willing on a number of Doctor Who's and Blake Sevens. But here he just said, no, I'm just going to pay one guy with a drum kit. And he's just going to do some background percussion to sort of lay over a few of the tenser moments. And the money he saved from doing that has clearly gone into those special effects that we've been discussing and, and that extra filming that we've been talking about. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, because it's, it's clearly there. There are, there are things done in this episode that aren't done in other stories. Correct. Mm. Point from you, Rob. Gosh, I've got two directions to go. I don't know which way to go. Okay, I'll go with this one. The term time meddler is interesting the way the doctor uses it in the story it's like a time meddler is a thing not an occupation per se but it seems that it's a term time lords use for people like the monk yes it's 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 like saying oh so you're a hell's angel or you're a graffiti artist yeah 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 which would suggest it's a big enough problem to be a thing that needs its own term (laughs) isn't that interesting to consider It, it, it is and it's a shame that the show didn't really go down that path Mm, yeah, that's that's just something that popped out to me. Uh, another thing, Dave, the Doctor being caged up at the end of the first episode, it ends with this look of fury on his face. <laughs> and although that's obviously not written with an eye on 50 years later, I see a real through line between that and the Matt Smith episode. I think it was his first Weeping Angel story where he does the big speech about, you know, didn't anyone ever tell you if there's one thing you put in a trap, you know, it's not me. Do you remember that speech? I, do I know you don't like speech. wanky speeches. I, I, I don't like that speech. No, it is a wanky speech, but yes, okay. I, I do remember it. But the, the, the fury that Smith has there, I can sort of draw a line between Hartnell being annoyed at being in a trap and Smith being put in a trap and being annoyed. That was just a little observation. Yes, and he does very quickly escape. And you also get that second time that he's put in the cell by the Vikings and he does um, set a trap for the Vikings and he gets that, I thought you were never coming back. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's great. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the Vikings, I think that the other weaker aspect of this story that I will highlight is some of that supporting cast and background artists. Uh, None of them are terrible, but few of them are very good. I think the, the the actress playing Edith is quite good, and she has some really good scenes um, with Hartnell particularly. The villagers are very just generic villagers. The mm. Vikings are pretty rough. And, and I was also just thinking, if this had been done in modern television, obviously there would also be a lot more of, of the villagers. It wouldn't just be sort of three or four of them, but the villagers would probably be a lot younger. Uh, the Vikings would all be very buff, very fit 19-year-olds, yeah. um, rather than just a bunch of sort of middle-aged actors in... in bad gin, wigs. In bad wigs, yeah. 
And of course, one of them has to be called Sven. Yes, Sven and Ulf. Um, yes, it's all... Um, yeah, uh, look, it's fine, but I, I, I contrast it with The Crusade only a few stories ago where I think those actors playing a lot of those characters were far better and the design was quite a bit better as well. Yeah, well, look, behind the scenes, I think it was all changed at the BBC at this point. I believe that when this was being written, Dennis Spooner didn't even really know who would be in it. There were question marks against Jacqueline Hill and Maureen O'Brien. I think he was writing this not even knowing who his characters were going to be. Yeah, that's probably true. And and look, it is the very last story of season two, and I suspect that the budget was running out and a lot of people were very tired, not least the regulars. Mm. So, uh, yeah, that's fair. Do we need to talk about what some would say problematic moment in the story? Oh, I can think of one, but I'm not sure it's the one you're thinking of. The, uh, the, thinking the Assault of? on Edith? It is, actually, yes. yeah. It seems to get glossed over. It, it, it's interesting. When I watched this as a kid, so I would have been 12-ish when I saw this the first time on VHS, I didn't get any particular connotations from what had happened. I, I knew that Edith had been captured by the Vikings and she'd probably been, you know... Tossed around a bit and assaulted Roughed a bit. up. Roughed up. Yeah, that's the, that's the word. Yeah. And, and then she's obviously, you know, quite shocked by that and she's hurt and, and all the rest of it. And I didn't see it as being anything more than that. Uh, looking at it now with, with adult eyes, there, there are very clearly implications in there. I mean, if you talk about Vikings, people use the phrase rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. And, and either this reaction to what has happened is very, very much that sort of shock at, at being sexually assaulted. So I, I think it is there. But I didn't see it as a kid, so I think it keeps to that line just about right. But it is somewhere that only 60s Who would go. In fact, only Hartnell era Who would go. What did you think of it? It really hit home for me most when Hartnell comes back down from the monastery and clearly she's been, quotation marks, roughed up. And he doesn't even really sort of say, how are you or are you okay? It just—it's just sort of very cursory conversation. Then he's off again, and and that's when it really hit home to me. They weren't concentrating on it; wasn't really part of the story. But clearly, it had happened. And I guess that's what you do in kids' television. You're not going to dwell too much on this sort of thing. Uh, you just leave it to the viewer's imagination, maybe. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that whilst it does to an adult watching it 60 years later seem a little bit gauche and you know uncomfortable that the doctor brushes over it and that it's not really highlighted i i think you're right it would be inappropriate for a kid show to to go that further because it, it is a, you know it was being done for kids and families in in the mid 60s uh, so i think they couldn't have gone any further and and i think there's also a part of it where they're sort of saying this is 1066 viking raids were common um mm. you know it's not that long ago from when the vikings had successfully conquered england um you know king canute and all the rest of it so are they saying to a certain extent this is part of life. If you're a villager in a coastal village in the north of England in 1066, you know, bad stuff happens. Hmm. Well, look, the world is a different place these days. I mean, a contemporary story right now in the media is cutting words like fat and ugly out of Roald Dahl books. Someone can't be fat or ugly anymore, Dave, so... Yeah, look, that's a whole kettle of words. We won't go down. Don't, don't get me started. We live in a different world. Don't get me started on Roald Dahl, because I could, I could really lay the boot in. But um, we won't. Oh, I understand that too, but yes, I'm just yes, saying. Yes, no, no, no. It's I a know, different world. I, I know the point you're making. So, yeah, look, look I, 
I think that they got the balance right given they were going to go down that path. Was it a mistake to go down that path? Look, I don't know. I'm not going to judge them 60 years later. But yes, it, it is something that the older I get, the more you see it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the final point I just want to make is about the conclusion of the story. Yeah. I remember, again, as a kid watching this, this the first time, thinking it was incredibly cool what the Doctor had done to the Monk's TARDIS. I think it's <laughs> one of those... It's one of those solutions that we think about Doctor Who as being all about and we want Doctor Who to be about. Whenever somebody says it's a real shame the Doctor just you know blew up the space station or whatever to solve the problem, what we're looking to is a solution like this where the Doctor does something really clever. He, he does something that only a Time Lord could do to the Monk's TARDIS and it's, it's a great visual, it's a great idea if he, he doesn't punish the Monk by hurting him or jailing him, or killing him, or anything like that. He just traps him on Earth and makes him suffer for a bit. And I think that's just a really cool little ending. And given that the Doctor has been absent for a lot of this story, he was obviously missing in Part 2. In Part 3, he sort of just wanders around a bit. But, but, but as he starts to get in there, he is the one that takes charge of the situation. He is the one that tricks the monk into explaining what's going on. And then he is the one that finally punishes the monk. And, and the Doctor should be the one that solves the problem in the end. And I think that's a really effective conclusion that I did like. Yeah, very fair. And and I mean, the monk doesn't deserve death. He's he's just doing the equivalent of like a kid going, yeah, nah, 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 nah. So <laughs> the, the doctor's solution of shrinking down the inside of his TARDIS is almost the equivalent of a nah, 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 back at him. <laughs> exactly, <you know? laughs> exactly right. So it's actually a, a quite appropriate kind of punishment. And it, and it ties in nicely with the doctor you know, not, not going around killing people if he can avoid it. Yeah, so completely agree with you there. Dave, for me, I'll finish off before we get to our conclusions on the story by, by just mentioning the ending of the story with everyone looking off to the stars. I mean, we talked about the Reign of Terror, oh, many months ago now when we looked at season one and how that season ended. Here, it's um, not so much a, a dialogue-driven, but just... The, the, the three leads looking off into the stars with a bit of a, a, a sketchy TV effect on their faces. Yeah, that blew me away the first time I saw that. I had no idea that that was coming. And it, it, is, right. it is really, really nice. And it, it is just this acknowledgement. I mean, we now think of these as being seasons, but the Hartnell era particularly, and to some extent the Trown era, do sort of feel as though they just keep rolling on because they were making 40, 50 episodes a year. Yeah. Um, but it is nice that they do have this moment to sort of punctuate where they are, and that we've got a new TARDIS crew, which, again, we sort of think think of this as just another TARDIS crew, but we only had two seasons of the show, mm. and we've now got rid of three of the four regulars that we opened with, so it would have been kind of a big deal for the audience to go, well, we've got, we've, we've got a completely different crew now. Yeah, let's reflect on that for a moment, yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, conclusions. Uh, do you want to go first or will I? Look, I don't really have anything new to say. I think it's a good story. I, I don't think it's a great story. I think that the I think that the the plotting and the pacing does slow it down to its detriment. But Hartnell's performance, Butterworth's performance, Canfield's direction, and just the fun of the concept and the historical setting all make it work. They all lift it up in a way that other stories might not be. And so I enjoyed watching it. If I was mm. doing grades, this would sort of be in the BB plus sort of area that, you know, could do better, but a perfectly solid story. Yeah, look, uh, is it a great story? I'd, I'd be the first to say no, although you've said that already, so I'm probably the second to say no. Um <laughs> <laughs> is it a bad story? Not on your life. You know, it's really watchable. It's easy to understand. 
it actually sets up what the series will become in the future. It's one of those episodes. The Monk's scheme is, like I said earlier, quite believable. So it might not be the Dalek invasion of Earth or the Romans to pick two other stories from this season, but I think it's entertaining enough and also introduces concepts that would become more important in time, like other Time Lords out there in the universe and so on. So, yeah, I quite like this. Probably a B- minus for me. That's fair enough. Hmm... And that wraps us up on the time medley. I hope you enjoyed that, folks. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was that was very fun to, for, to, to talk about. It's, a, it's an underrated story in terms of its importance in the canon, I think. In terms of the canon, absolutely. So, Dave, to finish the episode, we have some listener emails. Will I read this first one? Please. Okay. It runs, Dear Dave and Rob, We've never met, but I think my friend Mark Douglas, now living over here in the UK, knows or used to know Rob back in Australia. I'm currently going through a tough time with advanced and aggressive cancer, which struck out of the blue with the current outlook currently very unclear. I've been in hospital for the past two weeks and it's been really hard going. I've been a massive Doctor Who fan ever since I was a kid. My earliest memories being season 19, Davo. And Mark recommended your podcast to me as a way of passing time in hospital. I have absolutely loved listening. I think your dynamic is brilliant. And I've especially enjoyed your list maker shows, which have given me some wonderful ideas for episodes to watch. I know I'm just one listener, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you. All the best from David. That's a really lovely email. Thank you for sending that in. And look, I hope I hope everything works out well for you. And I'm I'm flattered and humbled that that we're able to help you in some difficult circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote back to David when I got this earlier in the uh, month. I wanted to just check that it was a letter that we could read on the air and such. And I also made the comment that when we sit here, we have no idea where people are listening to us. I I gave the example. I said, you know, we can fantasize that maybe a car salesman in Idaho listens to us while he walks around the car lot, (laughs) you know, but but we don't know that. (laughs) And, And so when people do write to us and say, I was listening to you as I was driving down Redondo Beach in LA or whatever, it's like, wow. And, and here, yes, this is very humbling for someone to be in, in hospital going through something at the moment and we're somehow entertaining. My God, <laughs> fantastic. Very, very humbled, David. Very humbled. Amazingly yes, so. thank you. Uh, I have a letter here from Nick in Tasmania. Mm. Hi, Robin Dave. Thanks for an excellent podcast with an excellent format. I listen to many Doctor Who podcasts, but yours is the one I ensure I never miss. Good start. Yep. Always happy to have emails that start that way. (laughs) After listening to your Second Chances podcast, there were many episodes I felt I needed to go back and watch. However, the first I did was coincidentally influenced by my reading. I've recently finished the new target novelization of The Eaters of Light by Rona Munro. Mm. While I've never loved the episode, I think it's a solid story from a strong season. The novel didn't change my mind, and while it was a pleasant read, it felt rather ponderous, as if a couple of set pieces were padded out with lots of, interesting enough, backstory. Having finished the novel, I finally took your advice and went back and watched the ep. What a story! The plot is slight, but it's tight and focused, and the dialogue and acting is absolutely spot on. There seems to be a really economical approach with the dialogue, necessary for a 45-minute episode, but there are some wonderful jokes and banter, practically none of which is present in the novel. 
I wonder if this was cut by Rhoda Munro in the novel to set the tone of the book, or if the Death by Scotland style golden remarks were all added by Stephen Moffat in a rewrite. I'm inclined to assume the latter, as Mr. Moffat's dialogue is regularly excellent, but whichever the case, it took a decent plot idea and outline and turned it into an excellent story. Thanks for influencing my rewatch, and let me know if you've read the novel and have any thoughts. Cheers, Nick in Tasmania. P.S. Forget what that reviewer a few apps back said. I loved it when Dave called Rob out on his nitpicking of Power of the Doctor. Got to discuss the big picture before focusing on why no one gets hurt when the building falls down. <laughs> P.P.S. Feel free to check out the Instagram account I operate with my young sons called Baby Hoovian. Together we're watching through the series and I'm writing reviews of each ep. It's mainly a time capsule of the boys as they grow up, but I've also enjoyed having a record of watching the stories in order. We've just started Pertwee and Leo is super excited for that new Doctor. Wow. That's really lovely. That's cool. It is. Yeah, I'm not not so sure about that PS. I mean, we, we do need to know why the, they didn't get hurt when the building fell down, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, no, to the substance of Nick's letter, I'm really glad you enjoyed The Eaters of Light. I gave it a 9 out of 10 when it first came out. I'm a real big fan of that story. Uh, it doesn't seem to be universally all that well regarded, so I'm glad it's got another fan. Have you read it? No, I haven't. It's one of a number of targets I do need to sit down and read. Yeah, I've not bought it, so I've certainly not read it. It is interesting to note that, you know, maybe Moffat did change things that Rona's like, oh, bloody Moffat, I'm not putting his lines in my book. <laughs> and maybe that's why it's the way it is. I don't know. I've, I've not read it. I can't comment. But I do love the episode too. Yeah. Uh, one more email, I think. There is. Uh, this is from Michael Herbert. Good afternoon. I'm writing to draw your attention to this new collection on 1970s television, Survival TV edited by Rodney Marshall, which includes a number of articles on Doctor Who. I have contributed an article on Malcolm Hulk's serials for Doctor Who. And Michael has given us a link to the uh, the book here, and it is called Survival TV. Uh, I read the blurb for the book, Dave, and I've got to say it sounds interesting. The blurb on Amazon runs, periods of political and social conflict tend to be the perfect breeding grounds for innovative fiction. 1970s Britain, with its all-too-frequent states of emergency, saw television scriptwriters respond creatively both to the general sense of doom and a growing public desire for cultural change. And that's what the the uh, essays in this book are about. I think that sounds really interesting. So thank you, Michael, for letting us know about it. Yeah, it's really fascinating when you sort of look at different decades in different countries. And I've, I've mentioned before... When you look at the 60s, everything coming out of Britain is sort of exciting and optimistic and fun, and everything in the US is just bleak and horrible because they're going through the civil rights movement and they're going through the Vietnam War pushback, and they're just completely different experiences. But you mm. you get to the 70s, and suddenly Britain's all about, gee, are we even going to be here in the 80s? Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's such a change, and you're right. I mean, some of the most wonderful television that has aged so, so well has come out of 1970s Britain. And it is, I think, because of that bleakness that, that sort of gives it a slightly more timeless feel than going back to some of the 60s stuff where you just go, oh, that, look at that. Weren't they naive? Mm. Um, 
Yeah, and as this blurb says, it happened across a wide range of genres. Sci-fi, cop shows, political drama, sitcoms, anthology series, action adventure, and even children's drama. So there are essays on all those types of shows in this book, apparently. You know, it runs the gamut. Well, just look, I mean, I'm not an expert on Bond, but you look at 60s Bond, which is all sort of like, let's go somewhere fun and have a big colourful adventure. And then you get to Mm. 70s Bond and everybody's really upset with everybody. (laughs) Dave, that's the end of the letters. We now normally do a little segment on what we've been watching. What have you been watching? So, look, I'm just going to mention a couple of things briefly. I did watch the new series, That 90s Show. Mm. And look, this was, if ever a series was aimed at me, this was because I was a teenager in the 90s and when I was a teenager in the 90s, I was watching that 70s show. So <laughs> I have double nostalgia for this and look, I thought it was really good bringing back some of the leads from that 70s show worked really well. The new cast by the end of it is getting together really well. Look, it was just a fun and light comedy show and there's not enough of that. Mm-hmm. Um, a much less light comedy show that I started watching is Ricky Gervais's Afterlife. Mm. I'm a big fan of Ricky Gervais. I love his work, and I'm surprised I hadn't seen this before. I thought season one was absolutely brilliant. I think that the acting and the concepts and the things they talk about, you know, it, it's about death and grief in a way that is visceral and really not tackled in, in television otherwise. No, it's heavy. It's, it's very heavy. Um, Gervais clearly has things to say, some of which... I agree with some of which I, I maybe don't, but find them thought provoking, which is which is good and important. So I thought that first season was great. Got into the second season and I haven't finished it yet, and not sure I will. I do feel as though in season one, Gervais had things to say, and the stories and the characters and the arcs were all about that. And then being, I think, probably to him quite a su- surprise success, he's now been told I'll do a second season and third season, and mm. it's like oh. Well, I've said what I wanted to say. And it sort of lacks a bit of impetus, I think, in the second season. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was that. Uh, I did watch Clarkson's Farm season two, and I just thought it was utterly wonderful, brilliant, informative, funny. Uh, I really enjoyed that, as did a lot of other people. And I have started watching Picard season three, like season one and season two. I've really enjoyed episode one. I hope that it continues in a way that seasons one and two didn't and both I felt let me down in the end, but uh, we'll, we'll see. And look, I suspect we may end up talking about that at the end of it, Rob. Yeah, look, our viewing this time around is very similar. I've watched that 90s show. I was entertained by it. I thought Clarkson's Farm was great too. And I've started Picard season three. And my main thought there is, this is just the show they should have made all along. I think you can tell the difference in the changeover of showrunners uh, between seasons one and two and now season three. I've also been watching a few movies. I've watched Devotion, which is about naval aviators uh, in the Korean War, in the very, very early stages of the Korean War. Uh, and that's a true story too, um, which is very interesting. I've watched The Troll, which is out of Norway, about a giant rock troll... <laughs> getting around the landscape it's sort of part king kong part godzilla but it's a european story that was quite fun and i've watched the menu where ray fines is a very demented chef and does some really weird stuff and that's all i'm going to say about that one yeah i'll echo you on the last one i saw the menu last year and i think i had it in my top three or top four movies of 2022 it was an absolutely amazing movie um i've seen 13 movies at the cinema so far this year Wow. Mainly catching up and making sure I see as many of the Oscar nominees as I can before the Oscars. I've now seen nine out of ten. 
mm-hmm. uh, and the tenth is All Quiet on the Western Front, which is the easiest one to watch because it is on 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 streaming. But I find that story a very tough one to read or watch, and um, mm. I've really really got to psych myself up to to watch it. So um, that's I something I need to do. Um, yeah, I've but- I've seen it. I think it's great. Yeah, but look, I've seen some really good movies. I think Tar was really, really good. Women Talking was quite well done. The one that's really sort of sat with me and really sort of had an effect on me was Spoiler Alert, mm-hmm. um, which is based on the uh, the autobiographical book Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. Um, <laughs> and it's an incredibly sad movie, but it was just done in such an affecting way that it's, has just haunted is too pejorative a word, but it's just sort of sat in my mind and kept making me think about about these things and um right it's sort of sort of in the way that you know afterlife did as well just you know thinking about life and sure. death and all that sort of yep. thing but yeah some great movies out at the moment i think i think that the post-covid slump um where the pipeline clearly dried up for a bit last year is now well and truly over and we've sort of got a lot of those prestige movies coming back and it's great yeah it's like after the writer's strike we had whenever that was years ago yes once tv started working again after the writer's strike it was like the pipes were unblocked this is the same thing just in movies yeah i i I think so i think so i did see ant-man and the wasp 3 during the week and i thought it was a good marvel movie i thought it was a a good mid-tier marvel movie okay well, look, that just leaves us to talk about what we're going to do next month. Dave, I might hand over to you here. This is kind of your idea. Yes. So as listeners will probably know, when all of the Whitaker Chibnall era stories came out, we did our hot takes on each of those episodes. Having mm-hmm. watched the minutes before we recorded, we said what we thought of them. And now that the era has finished, it's wrapped up, Jody has regenerated into David Tennant, I thought it was time to do a bit of a cold take on the era and do a bit of a look back at it and what we both realized when we were discussing this is neither of us have gone back and rewatched any of the Whitaker era so we've only nope. watched them on those hot takes so what we're each going to do is not go back and rewatch three seasons of, of Whitaker because that would be a lot but but we're <laughs> going to we're going to pick sort of five six seven episodes each and just go back and watch them, sample them, and see how we feel about the Whitaker Chibnall era looking back. How we feel now that it's it's all colder and we, we can have a bit more time and thought. Now we know how it ends. Does that change how we look at stories? Um, so, you know, one example I know I'm going to watch is Fugitive of the Jadoon, which I loved mm-hmm. at the time I watched it. I don't know whether I'm going to love it again or watching it knowing what's coming and what's not coming, do I like it more or less um there's going to be some others that i'm going to watch i'm not necessarily my favorites although i will watch some of my favorites but but also ones that i um perhaps was a little bit down on i want to give a second a chance to and maybe one or two that are a bit controversial i want to want to give a go to um probably mainly focusing on the first two seasons i might watch one or two episodes out of flux flux thank you um Mm. because that was quite recent but yes are you are you looking forward to this rob how are you feeling about the cult take I'm looking forward to the experiment, yeah, because it it may have genuinely been another year or two or three. I mean, years just fly by these days before I did get around to it. So this is going to actually force me to go back to Jody's stuff and have a bit of a a dig through it. I'm quite interested in what I will find. Will watching stories in isolation work better for me? Yeah. Maybe they will, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, listeners, if you have cold take thoughts on the whole of the Jodie Whittaker era, please let us know. We'll be happy to read those out. 
We will indeed. But until then, Dave, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. (laughs) And we'll see you next time on the Doctor Who show. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show. We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net. <laughs>